0: This show is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to PlanetsidePodcasts.com.
1: Welcome to I Shouldn't Have to Say This, the podcast where we discuss topics we believe requires critical and nuanced thinking. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at saythiscast@gmail.com gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at SayThisCast and go to saythiscast.com if you want to hear previous episodes. everybody welcome to i shouldn't have to say this the chaotic good podcast where we talk about progressivism and how to move the progressive project forward in the world but mostly just in the united states happy holidays and i hope that you and your families are well this week we have a pretty special podcast for you We'll be talking to my grandfather, a retired attorney who practiced law in the Chicagoland area for probably longer than most of us have been alive. Stick around to listen to some reflections on his life, about the importance of his community, and some ideas about where we should go in the future. We on the podcast believe there's a lot to learn from our elders, and especially from somebody who's lived the better part of a century, so stick around and you too can be in the know from one of the smartest people that I've ever met. A couple of disclaimers before we get into the episode. Number one, the sound quality might not be as it normally is, let's just say. Uh, My grandfather? is as i mentioned before 95 and he did not use a microphone setup and he lives with young children so you might hear a bit of background noise so just chill out and bear with us in the spirit of thanksgiving and loving our families it'll be okay second of all as a thank you to you our listeners this episode will be free until the end of the year then we'll be moving it over to patreon We just believe that it's a better platform for this more experimental or intimate content. So I hope that you'll join us over there so we can make more of this content, which really was so much fun to produce. Otherwise, yeah, um, I hope you enjoyed the episode. It's a little bit different than usual, and we'll be back to the normal content for our next upload, in case you want a teaser we're going to be talking about coronavirus and individualism. So, hope you'll join us for that as well. Anyways, sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Okay, so just got a really loose list of stuff here. So, just to tell you how it's going to work, Grandpa. First, I'm just going to ask you a little bit about like your background. So how you came to be uh, the man you are today, just your uh, background about like where you were born and when you came to the United States and your career as a lawyer, I guess. And then we can, and I know that you wanted to talk a bit about like your home and about um, community organizing and about like the importance of communities so we can have conversations to that effect after we go through like the baseline just so our listeners know a bit about who's talking you know
2: okay my <laughs> name is um eric graham and i was born in 1925 and um i'll be 96 in february of next year um it's been a long ride and <laughs> road in some respects but um uh, I'm still here. Yeah. I um, came to the United States in 1947 in order to um, attend college and went to Simpson College in Indianola, Iowa, uh, which is close to Des Moines. And um, at the end of the course at Simpson College, I went to University of Chicago Law School and became a graduate in 1950. I've been practicing law since um, 1958. Uh, the reason for the delay is that um, a person is not allowed to practice law unless you have a, become a citizen of the United States. And it took that long for the naturalization process to be completed. My career as a lawyer has been largely in the general practice of law, which meant anything and everyone who walked in the office um, would be heard. And perhaps um, representative, um, it was within um, my capacity um, to do so. And so it's been a broad range of people, a broad range of circumstances. And um, going to school back in those days, uh, largely involved working, working at night sometimes, um, working in the summertime, And um, working after classes, living um, sometimes on campus and sometimes in the community. And um, I retired about two years ago, and um, presently I'm uh, living in um, Ellicott City, which is close to Baltimore.
1: Yeah. And could you tell me a little bit about where you came to the United States from?
2: Well, I came from um, the Republic of Panama. But most of the time that I lived in the Republic of Panama was on the Panama Canal Zone, uh, which is some land, which is connected with the Panama Canal. And um, it's inhabited by the population um, that serve and run and operate the canal. It was entirely segregated. People um, from the United States were about 99% white, were on what's called the gold roll, uh, where the salaries were substantial. And um, the other employees were the, generally speaking, uh, black employees from the West Indies who came to operate and work on the canal. And um, their salaries were substandard. But um, it was um, a government-funded kind of operation. People were poor, but substantially um able to um maintain um, a pretty living scale of life even though it was on a very low economic level in most instances and um among the things that we were able to do was to build some strong communities among the people who lived on the silver roll on the Panama Canal zone
1: yeah that's something that you told me a lot about growing up uh, can you tell us a little bit about what kind of things that you did within your community in order to build such a strong community and uh, where some of the people ended up when they came to the United States?
2: Well, one of the interesting things about this um, community of people from the West Indies is that um, they came to live in Panama after a national and international depression. In the, um, and my parents moved there in 1904 the majority of the people uh, had been somewhat educated to a degree in the public schools of the West Indies where people were normally educated beyond the economic feasibility standards. Basically speaking, they tended to be overeducated for the kinds of job opportunities that were available. What does this mean if you live in a segregated community where your job skills are not being employed fully because you work on a a, a wage system and in a, an employment system uh, which excludes you from most of the better jobs? And uh, nevertheless, if you lived in a community where you lived in public housing and all the housing was public housing in the sense that uh, no one owned any private housing on the Panama Canal Zone. They lived in residences called the quarters, and um, which meant that frequently you would find yourself living among neighbors, many of whom had um, impressive skills. For example, the people across the street from us were the Scope family. Uh, Mr. Scope was an expert um, at scenography and bookkeeping, and typing and um, on his job, he did very little of that. But um, after work, there was an opportunity for him to have um, members of the community who were interested in having their children learn any of these skills, come to his house and um, with a room that would be segregated uh, from the general um, apartment for the purpose of teaching. Uh, teach all these skills so that way beyond um, what you would learn in the regular school programs that they had, uh, which would not include these kinds of skills, would be available to you. A similar thing happened um, to Mr. Miller. Mr. Miller was a tremendous music teacher who had a pump organ back in those days. um, uh, Pipe organs were the Expensive organs and the pump organs are things that you had to manipulate. But he taught all kinds of people how to play the piano and the organ um, using that organ. The other aspects of the community involved uh, many of the people who worked, um, like my father, uh, who had um, different kinds of skills based on the fact that he grew up in Grenada in the British West Indies where his father had come from Barbados to set up the school system in one of the districts in Grenada, a man who um, was learned in Latin and Greek and physics and calculus and that kind of thing. And uh, my father happened to be his son. Unfortunately, um, uh, he died when my dad was only 12 years old, but he had inculcated in his mind the idea that Education was a terrific thing to do, and he had a great background for it. And um, on the Canal Zone, they had what they would call community meetings, where the people on the silver roll would have a meeting of the community where they would discuss problems really generated by the lifestyle and the kinds of um, experiences that you were allowed to have, including economic experiences that were extremely limited, but which people still felt they needed to have their children learn uh, how to supersede and go beyond these kinds of experiences. So it meant, for example, that they'll talk about, if you're invited to do so, what should they be teaching in the public schools, in the silver schools, as they call them, silver road schools. And um, one of the young people who um, got a chance to come to the United States came back to Panama got a job as um, assistant superintendent for Silver Schools. And he was explaining that that program was designed to allow the students to experience and to be able to um, enjoy such economic opportunities as existed in that environment. And my father, uh, consistent um, with his notions about what he expected his children to learn and to do is that I want my son to be educated, to be the president of the United States. If <laughs> I don't, he never gets a job. And this kind of spirit, both in terms of the kinds of people that were involved, the way they looked at what some people might call a plight, the way in which they thought that they would overcome this plight, is largely a way in which, I imagine in the United States, that was pretty quite common. But in this particular community in which we live, uh, in the kind of community that we lived in, gave a great opportunity for folks to simply decide that we will overcome, not, not necessarily um, me myself, but my children will and not my children, my grandchildren, but they saw no limits to the possibilities of what the children had a right to have and um, had a capability of achieving.
1: Yeah. That's something that you've told me a lot over the years, that even under circumstances where you're disenfranchised, it's important to maintain the knowledge that nothing about that is set in stone and that you can always overcome the circumstances that surround you. Or if not you, then somebody in your community. And that's something that's really valuable and worth working towards. In a very scary political moment that we're in right now, I also think that that's a super important message for people. We're seeing a lot of bad stuff in the United States currently, but also we still maintain the connection to our communities and the ability to do things within our communities. We've had to do that as well throughout COVID. A lot of people have had to rely even more than in the last few years on their communities for things like groceries or just helping people get around or watch the kids or things of that nature.
2: So, well, you've had the experience of um, seeing the fulfillment of some of these dreams because um, your parents, to a certain extent, are the end products of the possibilities that had to be envisioned. Your father, for example, um, even though he was not part of the Canal experience, had the idea of coming to um, uh, the United States, your grandfather, your other grandfather. Yep. <laughs> tremendously overqualified for the opportunities that were open to him then and uh, perhaps never really fulfilling the possibilities that were inherent in his abilities and his education but saw it happen in his son's case where he really um, did very well even in the most um, competitive kind of technical corporate environment. Yeah, had a similar experience and um, basically these dreams started back in 1900, and um, so they're, um, they're pretty long. It's a long, long time to happen, but it has happened. Yeah. People have had to um, keep hope alive, so to speak. And one of the ways of keeping hope alive is to develop a strong family situation. For example, in our own family situation, we've had interlocking family relationships that have gone beyond our own experiences. Uh, and own the circumstances of our life, but the similarities still meant. For example, we become involved with the Thompson family. John Thompson, the coach for the Georgetown team, had won the national finals and had all kinds of other honors, but he had a father who was illiterate and uh, John Thompson, the the, the coach uh, a Georgetown. And um, nevertheless, he was able to overcome that. And in his present generation, you have seen all kinds of miracles occur. Some of the miracles, for example, um, didn't necessarily come from the canal experience because some of the other members of our family went to New York. The family that emerged from New York, largely from Aunt May, who went to possibly the sixth grade in school, and Uncle George, who probably had a similar educational experience, have produced some products at the end pro- term of uh, a number of years. Uh, she adopted some of the children. She saw her, her adopted daughter, for example, get one of the first master's degrees in nursing. We attended a, um, the unveiling of a statue that her granddaughter had produced commemorating the life uh, in, in, of... Um,
1: the Sojourner Truth statue in Battle Creek?
2: That's right. And they had the whole family stand up and get an ovation. So I was just saying that it, it really, I think, is inspirational to think in terms of, under really adverse circumstances, it's almost in, it difficult to envision, for example, that one of Aunt May's great-grandchildren produced the, envir- the experiment that was in the in the last um, thing that we sent out to the outer space, what, what's that called? Um, where sem-, SEM research is going to be advanced. Both she and her husband have PhDs in cell sem- sem- research and perhaps are two or four or five people who really understand the whole world. And this all came from a dream and from an idea that there was nothing too good for us, nothing too hard for us to do. And so um, just live on a daily basis and think about that and encourage other people and go beyond encouraging them, because actually, um, the encouragement involves sometimes having to feed them and having to um, go to great sacrifices to see that the educational process is necessary for the next step um, to take place. Uh, for example, um, uh,
1: Hold on one second. Uh can you speak again? I just want to make sure... The audio was getting a little bit uh, crackly, so I just want to make sure that it's okay. Could you speak again? We, we stopped at um, Genre. Do you remember where we stopped? <laughs> Yeah, I think we were talking about um, the, like, keeping, uh, I think the general idea was keeping the dream about, like, what your children or your children's children could do and about seeing that through to the end and just maintaining a spirit of, like, uh, like, of overcoming odds which seem insurmountable at all times.
2: Actually, it's an experiment that involved, um, how do you maintain your ego under circumstances where a lot of society seems to say you'll never make it and you have to say, I defy you to, um, I, 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 I will defy you and I will overcome and I will attain whatever it is that you're hiding and whatever you're saying, it's impossible. And um, you, you first have to have the ego to do this and you can do this by a variety of ways. Um, Religion might be one way um, or some other kinds of things. But the other thing is uh, maintaining how do we build a community where this thing can be generated and where it can be expanded? Um, Because as we mentioned the fact the whole family was invited to go to um, Battle Creek to see the unveiling. The question is, how was that family kept together? And um, who was present at the party that we had? Uh, the night before the unveiling.
1: I was. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and, um, now, part of the kind of thing that we're talking about is that one of Tina's, um, Tina was the um who had done the statue, was um, a lady who was the, the black uh, scientist in the um, television uh, show about outer space. I don't remember the name of it now. I don't, yeah, I can't. And and she was talking about the need for her to be aware of the fact that she needed to be an example and she could not do anything that would be disgraceful because she had that duty.
1: One thing that you said that stood out to me was the idea of maintaining ego under circumstances which are disenfranchising or disempowering and finding the means to uh, by which you can defy your circumstances or uh, defy the powers that be and like seek out the opportunities which are hidden to you and such. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit to pivot a bit about your um, career as a lawyer in Chicago and your involvement in some of the uh, in the civil rights movement and some of the ways which you saw which were effective at um, both like building the tools to defy circumstances and also some of the instances of people doing that that you've lived through?
2: Well, one of the things um, that's very useful and here, we go back to the educational thing is what do the people who get a chance to move up a little in the sense of um, coming to the United States to go to college. What do they do after they get here? And um, some of them have done some really great things, uh, both for themselves as well as for the community in general. Um, now, the notion of um, becoming a committee of one, stating that I guess the, the group that I would think about in Panama um, that was organized uh, by this gentleman I mentioned who came and got the scholarships from the HBCU school. It's called the Isthmian Negro Youth Congress. And the word Negro, I'm sure, is passe, A, but <laughs> they call people.
1: It was the historic name. Don't email us. <laughs> and,
2: and, but all of the individuals in the um, Isthmian Negro Youth Congress were really told that they were going to be assisted with their education and they were gonna be assisted in any other way, but they also had a duty to become committees of one, so to speak, for improving the circumstances under which the general population of which they were a part um, happened. For example, uh, in my case, um, the Committee of One um, had an opportunity to um, meet a lady by the name of uh, Eleanor Robeson, who had lived on the Canal Zone and deplored the fact that so much talent was going to waste because of the sermon circumstances that existed there <coughs> and that uh, we really some doors really should be opened. And education was one of the ways of opening doors. So finding out that I had um, come to the United States, obtained a scholarship at Simpson and um, spoke Spanish came and told me that she wanted me to work uh, along with some of the projects that she was engaged in. One of the projects was an opportunity to speak to the president of Roosevelt University um, and um, talk to him in such a convincing fashion that hopefully he would do what he did. So we talked about the opportunities, just like we have had, the limitations and so forth. And at the end of the conversation, uh, he said, well, if you would bring me such a student, I would definitely give him a scholarship at Roseville. I said, well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Gave him the name of Lorenzo Harrison, one of my classmates in um, high school. And um, Lorenzo became the, got a PhD in history eventually, <laughs> after coming here, um, got a scholarship, of course, uh, at Roseville, and, um, and went on um, to be, He's a PhD, uh, then a professor at some university, uh, University of Indiana, uh, which I think he's probably retired from at this point. Mm-hmm. But several committees of one, in that same fashion, uh, did all kinds of things. Um, the, the guy who became the, um, one of the mathematicians involved in the um, Department of uh, Weather in the United States, came to Chicago Uh, as a student, and he ran out of money and also had to face a winter without a coat. And uh, because of our responsibility for this kind of thing, beyond education, we made donations and I gave a sport jacket that I had and uh, other guys came forward. But it was a duty of responsibility, not only to dealing and addressing the circumstances, but also addressing the needs that emerged the needs for a place to live, the needs for money, the needs for a sport jacket in the winter of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And um, so that, I guess, opportunities arise, like, for example, what we mentioned in the Canal Zone. Uh, Mr. Scope could have said, well, I'll just um, live my life out and um, eventually, um, I guess, I'll but he, he's, the idea occurred to him that I've got a living room and I could teach a guy how to type Uh, one of the people that he taught how to type became the second fastest typist in the world, a member of the Isthmian Negro Negro Youth Congress who um, came to Chicago and um, ended up teaching at Harvard. But I was just saying that I guess we now think in terms of, well, if I can't get a government grant and if I can't get the uh, public school system or the university system to incorporate me, I'm going to give up. And a lot of people have said, I'm not going to give up no matter how hard they make the race, no matter how tough the fight is. Mm-hmm. And we're not only going to do it in terms of um, giving um, gratuitous notions about encouragement, we're going to put our hands and uh, behind the back, so to speak, and uh, even come up with some money or other forms of assistance as the as the need arose. And so that the one of the points is that um, th- this can be done within the family in terms of the responsibility for each other. It can be done in terms of the responsibility that we have for the general community. And it also uh, results in a necessity to tell people that keep hope alive because look at what happened. Look at what happened to Lloyd. He's now teaching at Harvard. Look at Martin Melarengel. He's now teaching at um, at Indiana. The principal book on the death of the dictators in um, Latin America. There was a time when almost every Latin American country was run by a dictator, uh, which has some lessons for us because we're pretty close to it here, I think.
1: <laughs> we sure are close to that.
2: The demise of the strong men. And as we um, envision um, what's going to happen with Putin and um, uh, and the president of the United States and the president of China and the president of um, North, North Korea. Uh, are, are these a strong men and will there be a demise of the strong men one way or another?
1: I mean, yeah, difficult to tell. One can only hope.
2: Okay, we'll go back to what some of the things that I participated in here uh, in Chicago. And, yeah. Um, yeah for, well, for example, um, We're involved in all kinds of different ways uh, in the civil rights movement within our family Um, and within some of the things that were done um, institutionally. There was our involvement with the regular um, civil rights organizations. For example, um, Dr. King was in my office when he came to Chicago the day he got hit with a rock in his head Uh, by going into Gage Park. And um, <laughs> proclaiming the need for uh, greater equality and better housing and all that. And uh, one of the white protesters, co- country protesters, uh, threw rocks at him and one hit Dr. King instead. And uh, he went and died with a scar uh, of that event. Now, um, I did not have personal contact with King in more than one instance. He he walked into the office that morning, and he says, how are you, my brother? And um, I said, fine, and how are you, and Dr. King? And that was the end of our conversation. Then the eight lawyers in my office uh, went to the scene, and the question is, why didn't I go? And they said, I was the oldest guy in the group, and someone <laughs> had to be there to answer, answer the telephone. Well, why did someone have to be there to answer the telephone? Because they knew that hundreds of people would be arrested, and they would be the protest workers, <coughs> and there would be very poor people's children, and the parents would be calling to ask, "Well, how do we get my kid out of jail?" Because I saw the policeman put him in the wagon. Mm. One of the big problems sure. was that in order to protect the family name, the kids would sometimes give a, a wrong name. So when I try to call to say, um, you know, I know that um, this boy was arrested, and we want to find out what the what the bail bond is going to be. And I said, we don't have anybody by that name. But the, the question is that uh, why would eight lawyers decide that they would do, stop whatever they were doing to go out there and um, just arrest, they, they would get the names of people that they would de- try to defend because all of the arrests were probably um, unlawful.
1: Dubious, to say the least.
2: <laughs> but, but it was something that had to be done. But, but I was saying... The the idea of being a committee of one, the organizations were great, Uh, but also the sense that regardless of, if everyone else decided to do nothing, I would still do what I am doing. That was a strong aspect of the people who volunteered um, to be part of all of these different um, community actions that were taken. Uh, Taken largely by the sense of, I am a member of a community, And number two, if a thing develops where I have an opportunity to join hands with others, I will take it and I'll probably do something even if there were no hands You
1: can stop me if this is an unfair characterization of what you're saying. But um, essentially right now, something that a lot of people in my hemisphere of the political spectrum are talking about is the concept of mutual aid to each according to their need, from each according to their ability. A really basic concept where uh, you look within your friend group, your family group, your community, and you see what can I do for my friends and family and my community today? And if everybody does that, then the community gets taken care of. And that's really important because that is independent of everything else going on like if you're a strong community you can defend yourselves against a whole host of stuff but you know even just in the case of like one kid it's one kid at a protest somebody sees them they get in contact with their mom their mom calls a lawyer their lawyer pays their bail and then they're out on the street again and that's a concept that can only come from people paying attention to the people around them and extending themselves in ways that are meaningful and that they are able to, that uh, correspond to the needs of the people around them.
2: There's another aspect of my practice um, that probably might be interesting. The question is, does anybody talk to the gangs? In Chicago, perhaps, there emerged a gang called the Blackstone Rangers And the Blackstone Rangers um, operated out of uh, an area close to the University of Chicago. And um, historically, it started off as a thing that happens in many communities where teenagers say, you don't go beyond Blackstone, uh, and they don't ever come over in our section. And particularly if you come into the section and go out with a girl. we we will get you. And so during the midst of a political campaign, um, where I was the um, campaign manager um, of the um, candidate, who, by the way, uh, won, um, we were right in the hood, in the middle of the hood. um, I say hood, I mean the neighborhood. And um, the gang boys would run by the office And um, sometimes they saw the lights on, and eventually um, they came in. Well, One night, the kid who came in was Jeff Ford, who became the leader of the Blackstone Rangers, which at that point were just a bunch of punk kids who, um, well, um, were doing that kind of thing, punching somebody in the back and running, and eventually ended up being... um, big-time narcotics, Um the question really is, would contacts made with those people ever make any difference? The biggest lie that anyone ever told in court, perhaps, was when I went with Jeff uh, when he was arrested, and I was giving a plea, um, judge, I really would want my, give, a, give this young boy a chance, and um, and his mother says, Yes, Judge, if if you do, um, you'll just never see him again. Well, That's the worst thing that could happen because um, uh, he became a notorious criminal ultimately. But I was just saying the contact that we made with him uh, was very serviceable in all kinds of ways. For example, uh, my neighborhood in South Shore, my particular block um, was off limits um, to recruitment of the gangs. Because I personally knew Jack Cirillo McSween, who was um, your mother's um, godfather, mm-hmm. was the treasurer of the Southern Leadership Conference, the Martin Luther King's um, organization. And um, uh, uh, he became uh, one of the people that the senator that we were trying to get elected. Uh, tried to reach out to, based on the relationship that we'd established, uh, he became involved um, with the, the Blackstone Rangers to the point where um, we got to, the point we were, we were talking to them on every level of their idea about which would they join the good guys or the bad guys. There was a time when they joined the good guys when a Jewish um, synagogue was given to Jesse Jackson uh, to have his meetings. And um, they had retreated and left the building. It was no longer a synagogue. And they had to give it to someone else. And so they gave it to, um, to the Jesse Jackson um, group, which at that time was called Operation Red Basket. But it was located in the gang territory of a competing gang. And they said that um, they were not going to allow the meetings to be held there because uh, nobody had consulted them. And so. The question was, would they have a meeting or would they not have a meeting? And they did have a meeting because 1,400 uh, Blackstone Rangers with their camps which they say, with the kind of uniform for them, uh, they came and fought um, a kind of a guard of honor to allow the people to come in and uh, let the other guys know they're in serious trouble. Uh, if they did not allow this good thing to happen. Um, another instance was, um, the interaction between the good guys and the bad guys, so to speak. Uh, David James, who was the who became the public relations man for the American Bar Association, and Dick Newhouse, the campaign um, that I was talking about, and one and I uh, once heard that pursuant to the speeches that we had made, encouraging the guys, we got you got numbers and. Um, if you decide that you wanted to go into some kind of industry, you immediately make customers of your 14, whatever number of uh, people you have in the gang, and you've got a customer list that many people would wish they had and other kinds of things that you can start doing this kind of business. And um, Dave knew a lot about business and Dick knew a lot about politics. And I guess I knew a lot of uh, things in general. But based on this um, encouragement, the... Blackstone Rangers decided that they were going to buy the cleaners, one of the cleaning and crushing establishments. And um, they paid the money. And then three or four days later, they decided that they were gonna move in. And they were met by someone from the sheriff's office who said that um, the man who gave you soldiers property didn't own it. He, uh, he lost it in a, uh, in a lawsuit and his right to possession. You know, so basically you have nothing and you don't own this place. And so um, we found out that, well, they were not going to go to the Supreme Court, but they were going to kill him. (laughs) Dave and Dick and I intercepted this kid and managed to persuade him not to do it. And that was our good deed for the day. Yeah. I say I'm over-personalizing this to a certain extent, but one of the things that's really missing today is that people who make big, loud speeches are scared physically to go out in the street and possibly get shot. That is part of the uh, dangers of actually physically going out there. Even when Dr. King came to Chicago, his two bodyguards were um, two members of the Garfield Organization, which was another gang that we represented on the west side. When I say represented them is that what we've tried to do was to tell them that you have numbers, and we have problems that need to be resolved and you can participate and we'll try to instruct you and assist you. And therefore, um, I guess guys who went to work with suits would, would try to go out in the street and actually took the, took the risk of getting killed. But there was a constant relationship and a constant identification back I'd mentioned Cyril McSween before, the national treasurer of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference Uh, he became part of this group of encouragement and so forth and with his um kind of thing and and he and jeff Fort, for example i don't know what they talked about but they have great long conversations and uh frequently um the bad guys were uh on the side of the righteous people uh, in many instances where number one we needed numbers number two we needed needed some protection the city of chicago realized that dr king was coming there to protest against the administration of the city and refused to give him a a bodyguard. Well, he got a bodyguard anyway. Goat and Curley were constantly in his presence. And uh, anyone who would have tried to do anything at all against Dr. King would probably have died. Mm -hmm. Horrible thing to say, but um, they would have done it.
1: Yeah, I often think about how one of the worst tactics that was employed during the drug war, which is, of course, not over, was trying to cut off the head of the Hydra. Because, like, then hundreds more sprouted up from the ones that you threw in jail. And now it's really difficult to establish those types of personal connections with gang members on the street. It's unfortunate.
2: The other thing that I want to call to mind is that The prisons really educated the young boys that they imprisoned to become super criminals. Mm -hmm. Relatively uneducated young punk kid when we met him. And the citizens were right in the sense of saying, um, he's a punk kid, but his gang is doing some terrible things. And we ought to teach him a lesson and give him some prison time, some serious time in prison. Eventually, they succeeded in putting Jeff Ford in the penitentiary. In the penitentiary, he learned the techniques of importing ma- cocaine from Mexico, <laughs> how, to, how to order it, <laughs> how, to, how, to, how to store it, and how to sell it. Yeah. So when he came out of prison, he had a PhD edu- education in how to be a super criminal.
1: Yeah.
2: It was really a, a big difference is that Cocaine itself was bad enough, but crack was even worse. And um, just on the verge of the good guys perhaps having some influence, uh, crack cocaine came in. And um, even a punk couldn't deal with it. It, it, it didn't require the complicated um, uh, chemistry and, um, and, and, and business sense that importing a, a lot of um, cocaine from Mexico required. But, but life went on.
1: Yeah. I sure did go on.
2: But the <laughs> idea of getting the head off of the thing uh, is a good idea in a sense that if you could find out how to do that, and if you, for example, um, I guess um, there is no longer Al Capone's gang.
1: It was kind of a different deal, though. <laughs> <laughs> well... Um, but that's a longer.
2: It's the kind of criminality were you thinking of when you say get rid of the app.
1: Yeah, it's um it's a complicated negotiation cuz even though like Al Capone doesn't exist and was put in jail like his gang didn't end immediately, but this is another, this is another like admittedly very interesting topic. But I think that we would have to record for another hour in order to get all of that. Um, so maybe another time we can talk about gang violence and what we do about it.
2: But some of the things that people have started that, um, that have been useful. Um, for example, um, like we mentioned before, Uh, in our conversation, um, the idea of cooperatives, Um, just in terms of just pure, straight up, people cooperating with each other to get something done. There were the um, different kinds of Afrocentric schools that people started with the idea that um, this culture had become so abusive and um, restrictive and demoralizing that you had to develop a whole new modern structure of knowing who you are and what you want to do. And it had to be done in an Afrocentric manner because you'd never be able to do it in the manner that the United States um, was pushing. And um, so that, that formed some groups that went off from the, nor- the, the regular uh, model of trying to make it within the structure.
1: For the listeners, if anybody ever tries to tell you that uh worker co-ops are a new idea, this is a point against that. Worker co-ops were being employed since the mid 20th century. It, it's fine, guys. We it's just it's one of those things. It's um they've existed for a long time. Anyways, I feel like we could talk for a long time on a great deal of subjects, but maybe we should um, schedule another time to talk about like, you know, criminality and what we do about gang violence. And then another time that we could talk about the co-op model, because I think that we have a full episode of like the message about uh, mutual aid. Um, I wanted to ask you what you want to see in the future, or how do you think we handle the oncoming period of, like, tumultuous uh, crud that's about to happen to us? Like, what what would your advice to people who are at home and scared about our current political situation
2: be? I don't really believe that anyone knows what this crazy situation, which we find ourselves in. For example, um, most of us went to school and we learned that um, uh, there was a thing called the national debt. And you had to deal with the national debt very carefully um, because um, if it got out of hand, the country could fall apart. Right now, for example, um, when I was a little boy, they used to write on the, on the, um, on the, on the dollar bills, redeemable for one dollar in gold from the United States Treasury. Of course, that would make no sense at all today. There is no United States Treasury filled with gold, and um, there is no relationship between the gold owned by the United States government and the money that is being printed. And um, and so that uh, money is being printed, and um, no one is explaining what's this doing to the national debt, and uh, nobody even really gives a damn, it appears, about that aspect of things. Then the the other on the other hand, of uh, we have when I was a little boy, uh, we thought about the the United States Supreme Court as being something that was managed by some people that were above uh, criticism for whatever reason. And that um, maybe even as late as um, 10 years ago, um, I began, continue to believe that uh, people of high moral esteem uh, and principle were the only ones who would even be considered um, to be on the United States Supreme Court. And as I sit here now, I think about it as a politically manipulated uh, group of people who have already made their decisions about matters and that the briefs submitted really don't mean a thing. So that we can talk about precedence. And we, they taught us a lot of that in law school. And they talked about, um, uh, following the law, and um, I don't think there's any commitment to doing that that is obvious. And I think it what appears to be obvious is um, submitting to the insane ambition of a crazy man.
1: Yeah, we're in a difficult situation. What I've been telling my friends and community of late is things are going to happen. Nobody knows how it's going to shake out. It's probably not going to be great, but it's at this time that it's the most important to fall back into to build community. So you have somewhere to fall back to because things might get a little bit rocky and you're going to need to support each other because it's not entirely clear that the United States government will continue to do that and even more so that the mechanisms and institutions which we believed or didn't believe but but exist to protect people are either being eroded to the point that they don't or never were created with the intention of protecting us. And so it kind of is a moment where community is the number one most important concern.
2: Ideally, what we what we have to hope for is that um, we will really start off with ourselves and ask yourself, well, what, am, what am I really a model of? Number two, um, examine our associations, um, including your family and the people you, you join, and asking what are the moral values and what are the social values of the communities um, to which I join?" And, and align and, and, and associate with. And number three, how do we want our dreams to be fulfilled? Can any good thing happen <laughs> beginning with where we are? And I guess we, it's something about if you're a praying person, you need to pray. And I don't know what the other people are doing.
1: Meditate, hope, uh, I don't know. We... We, we get by somehow. <laughs> we kind of like to end our podcast on a good note with what's making you happy or hopeful this week. And so I wanted to ask you if you had anything that was making you feel happy or uh, hopeful this week.
2: Very, very happy that my, I became a great-grandfather for the first time a few months ago. And um, yesterday I heard my great-granddaughter, who was, um, I guess, um, several weeks old, say her first word.
1: Oh, what was it?
2: <laughs> I, 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 I'm not quite sure I can say it.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right then. Well, it's not
2: in my dictionary, I don't think. But um, but it was a word. She
1: was talking. It's a.
2: Uh... Well, a lot of the, as the other stuff that we've listened. To.
1: Well, that's awesome. You know, even in the darkest of times, there are things that we can appreciate. So um, thank you so much for uh, being on the podcast, Grandpa. Um, Oh, that's right. We didn't say that at the beginning of the podcast. Um, This is my grandfather, Uh, everybody. You might have caught onto that throughout the conversation. You can't find him on social media. So don't try. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, thank you so much, Grandpa. I really appreciate it. Um, And I'd love to talk to you another time because I know that you have a bunch of wisdom that you want to share with people. And we certainly have more topics that I think that you could give really, really valuable insight on. So thank you.
0: And that is it for this episode of I shouldn't have to say this. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked this episode, if you want to hear more of this, like more interviews like we had with Andy about respectability politics or Nicole's grandpa, um, about his history and the civil rights movement, then just let us know. Say this cast at gmail.com, or you can tweet at us at say this cast. Make sure to follow us to keep up to date on what we're doing. If you would like to support the show, that would be great. You can go to coffee.com, that's k o dash fi.com slash say this cast, and give us a one time pay, or you can go to patreon.com slash say this cast. There you can subscribe for uh, whatever you want a month, uh, $1, $5. If we have some listeners at the $10 level, we are going to start producing extra episodes, little episodes with different. uh, We've had a lot of ideas for uh, extra episodes that we can do for our patrons. So patreon.com slash say this cast. You can find me online at press start lock and you can find Nicole online at Jack of three trades. And that's three as in the number. If you like the music that we play, all of it is by Mustin, a great DJ, remixer, go to store.mustinenterprises.com and you can purchase any of the music that you hear uh, and support a great independent artist. I shouldn't have to say this is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. We know that this is coming out just after Thanksgiving, so we hope you had a great socially distanced turkey day. We're going into the holiday season, and it's going to be tough not being able to see our parents, our grandparents, our friends, but it's vitally important that we wear our masks. We stay inside when we can. We socially distance. We all have to work together to keep all of our loved ones safe and healthy.